Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. At the top of every month, I choose a filmmaker or genre of which I am woefully oblivious, and then discuss the significance of it with a guest who will then recommend me three titles most relevant, which then I will watch and report back on. This month, I'm exploring some films from the Canucksploitation uh, subgenre. I've been told by my guests that it is Canucks with an X, not with a C-K-S, Canucksploitation. And joining me to discuss is said guest returning for the second time in, what's my math, three, four months, but it's David Bax from Battleship Pretension. Hi, David. Hi, thanks for having me. And David, you remain, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to reiterate it, you remain the probably only guest that has pitched themes to me. Uh, to come on on this, and so this was one that I guess what just shortly after I don't know sometime last month you just texted me like I want to do con exploitation I was like all right well I'll put that one in my back pocket and then it turned out I needed that for my back pocket sooner rather than later. Yeah, and it was uh, well. Thank you for having me back. Um, I'm trying to what, what in your in, in your intro just now that you say at the beginning of every episode you said something about like. Uh, the three three most relevant films yes. or whatever. Yes. But oftentimes it's like because it's three films that are available on streaming. Yes. Because I've told I know I've told you I can't remember like I don't know if you remember, but there's another topic that I want to do and I've wanted to do for a while, but one of the key films is not streaming anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I check every once in a while uh um and and that movie that two hour and 45 minute movie is still not streaming i can't <laughs> wait to, to make you watch it um along with a couple of other two hour and 45 minute movies um jeez oh, but um yeah so can exploitation though what, what happened basically and this will be a bit a bit of a spoiler of what movies i'm going to recommend i won't say their names but i i was thinking of there were a couple of movies that were only a few years apart that were both like holiday themed slasher or proto slasher films and i was like and and so in my head i was like oh i wonder if i could find a good third one from this era and do that as a pitch that to jim as a topic like holiday themed horror movies mm-hmm, yeah. and only in researching them did i realize that they were both produced during this uh what is colloquially known as the exploitation era mm-hmm. and i realized oh that's a really fascinating thing so that's a spoiler that two of the films i'll be recommending uh, have another thing in common which is that they are slasher films that take place on a holiday mm-hmm. but um but uh, i don't know if you want me to to get into exploitation or if you want to talk hockey there's no hockey uh, th- there isn't but that doesn't mean there isn't something to talk about because the playoffs are still allegedly in play, despite the fact that I, I, I think the NHL has the hub cities settled. It's going to be Edmonton and Toronto. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. that, with the Stanley yeah. Cup finals being played in Edmonton. But um, I don't think things have been fully locked down because a bunch of teams, including, I believe, most recently, your beloved St. Louis Blues, are reporting yeah. that COVID cases keep breaking out. Yeah, apparently, I, uh, as of this morning, I don't know if things have changed. They hadn't... Uh... 
named anyone, but apparently yeah. four players and one other member of the team in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so five people tested positive, uh, and so they shut down the training camp. Back, whatever it was, three months ago or so, when I was on the show, three, mm-hmm. four, almost four maybe at this point, um, I think you and I both agreed they should just scrap this season. Yep. And and get ready for whatever the 2020-2021 season is going to look like. And uh, they don't want to do that, but it, it it seems like I still think they should. I am with you on that. I think they should have canceled this a while ago. And from what I understand, you know, you won't see ESPN or NHL publishing stories about it, but insiders and, and a lot of beat writers will be telling you that it the the players kind of seem like it's a 50-50 split where, like, a lot of them do just want to axe the season and, like you know, let everyone kind of take off, especially older players that have families, because the idea, um, I do movies badly listeners who don't care, but are going to sit through us talking about this anyway, the idea of having two hub cities is basically 24 teams in the playoffs, which normally there's 16, um, they, all these playoff games will be played in just one of these two cities, basically, over a series of months, which means basically a player has to move to that city, and if they go all the way to the finals or, or, or whatever. But basically the idea is that a player and their team will be staying in the city for months at a time. But the problem is, okay, so older players that have families, it's like, what, you're telling me I have to uproot my family and move them to Edmonton for three months? And then what if one of them gets sick and then they're all staying in the same hotel complex and a bunch of people get sick? It's just, it's kind of a nightmare, but what would you expect from a bunch of old white billionaires who are saying, we paid money for this. We want to see our our investment basically play out. <laughs> We're both like at a loss for words for how to describe. Like, because you just laid it out. Like, you've just laid out the case for why this shouldn't happen. And the only argument, or the only argument, is either that you have people have some investment mm-hmm. in in the team, or like, I mean, financial investment, or it's people who are so desperate for dependent on sports for their identity and entertainment and desperate for it that they're that they're saying i don't care what these players and their families have to go through i miss my sport yeah and that's the thing i think it's the the decision to move forward comes as as a as a mixture of six of one half a dozen of the other um but it, it just seems i don't know and don't get me wrong here in new york we've got msg and so msg has been playing kind of every weekday sort of like old Rangers games, basically, kind of whether it's like recently in June, it was the 25th, 20th, it was the anniversary of the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup in 1994. So they were replaying a lot of specials from that, a lot of games from that. They've now been doing stuff of like, um, you know, the best of Yermer Yager, so like certain games where he hit certain milestones or whatever. So it's been fun for me kind of going back and watching old stuff and remembering I can't believe this guy was playing on the top line, or I can't believe this person once played on the, on defense. And it, it has me yearning for it, but at the same time, like, I, I've already been going now, what, four months without it? I'm, I'm fine if we have to keep on waiting. So this is the difference between, like, movie fans and sports fans, is that movie fans, like, yes, it would be fun to be having a summer blockbuster season or, or whatever, uh, if that's your thing. But in the meantime, we have... Netflix, we have Criterion Channel, we have all of these sources to watch uh, plenty of old movies and content. And we, like sports fans, have that too. There are plenty of ways to watch old games, and there are, like you said, there are networks airing old games, but that doesn't seem to scratch the itch for the sports fan the way that watching old movies uh, can scratch the itch for a movie fan. 
to it's a different mindset. And it is weird because I know I guess a sports fan can say like, well, I've seen this game already, but like also how much of what you're watching have you seen already as well? You know the outcome. It's it's more of as someone who has rewatched most of the uh 2019 stanley cup final game seven multiple times uh there's plenty to be uh gained from rewatching uh games if they if they turn out in a way that you're looking forward to <laughs> and now yeah and i would do the same thing if my team had won in i can't even say recent memory because i remember it but this is over 20 years ago now and it's kind of shameful if we keep revisiting the 1994 stanley cup win um, yeah, at a point that does become like the uh, the the uh, Al Bundy talking about his uh, his high school football. <laughs> um, and yet, New York has, or at least New York hockey fans, have built their pretty much their legacy around that one thing, which happened almost thirty years ago. But now, if the league does does actually come back as proposed, would you? enthusiastically watch would you avoid it to kind of as take a stand or would you like watch it but then feel kind of dirty about it yeah probably the third option to be honest <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably still watch yeah <laughs> i probably would too if, if if for no other reason then um i think statistically and i don't know i don't i haven't done the math i've just been told it the rangers have something like a one in thirty-two thousand chance to both get the top draft pick, and win the Stanley Cup in the same, in the same year. <laughs> Although I, I say I'd watch, but I've all, I was also just talking about um, uh, the plight of the American hockey fan mm-hmm. is then you know the awkwardness of having to ask the bartender to turn the hockey game on. Do you know <laughs> that, that, that feeling? And I feel like playoff hockey is one of the few times where there's a good chance the bar is, as long as there's not also a playoff NBA game happening at the same time, Sure, there's a good chance the bar is showing hockey. And so I watch, I tend to watch a lot of playoff hockey in bars, especially as the further the blues go, the more I <laughs> uh, like to, to go and, and enjoy it with other people. And so, yeah, I, I would probably watch, but it would be sad to me to realize like, oh, I can't order another plate of wings. You know, yeah. I can't. If my team wins this game, I can't, you know, order a shot for the other guys I was watching the the game with, or like the fun stuff that I like to do when mm-hmm. I watch playoff hockey in bars. Mm-hmm. No, I understand that. Now, is there? Because I know in New York, being as a, a huge and diverse city as it is, if you're a fan of a team, chances are there's a bar that will play that team's games. Is that the same in Los Angeles? Like, can can you go to a St. Louis Blues bar basically? There, I don't. I don't know of a blues bar here. Maybe I'm missing out. Uh, I know as a uh, for when it comes to college football mm-hmm. for Mizzou football, I'm a Mizzou uh, fan. Okay. And there is a, a it's a big bar in Santa Monica that has like a lot of TVs, and they do have on days like Saturdays when Mizzou is playing. There is an area that is the Mizzou area where they'll turn on the game. So, but that's like also like I don't want to go all the way to Santa Monica to like what have beers and then drive back or like. <laughs> It's an expensive lift, so I've only I, I haven't done it that much. But yeah, I don't know of a of a of a blues bar. Uh, I'm trying to think. I I live not too far from a I think it's a Green Bay Packers bar, and that's always <laughs> a weird. Uh, that's especially weird is to like to go into the bar that is the bar of uh, some team you have you don't care at all about. Um, uh, yeah, there's another, and there's another one. I can't remember who who it is, uh, but there's another like a bar that I'm a regular at 
that I forget on Sundays sometimes is like, oh, right, this is a, and I can't remember what it is. It's like Detroit Lions. It's like some weird thing. And like suddenly the bar's full of, uh, uh, full of fans. Um, but I can't, I can't remember what team that is. Uh, yeah, I wish I, maybe I need to designate a, uh, I mean, there's a Facebook group for, for blues fans in LA. I don't know if they've picked a bar. There's in the lower East side in New York city, there's a bar for Buffalo sports fans, which it's kind of fitting. Maybe that's a, that it's a dive bar. Cause it has to be one of the most depressing places to go. If you are a sports fan <laughs> of any Buffalo sports team. I wonder there was, um, when the blues were in the playoffs in, in 2019 for the last couple of rounds. Cause there's a, there's a St. Louis like fan, uh, blog, uh, and, and fan run newspaper called St. Louis game time mm-hmm. and their website. They put out a call for, Hey, if you're in, if you don't live in St. Louis, pick a bar and the people met meet. So for the last couple of rounds, there was a bar, uh, um, that everyone went to here, but it didn't seem to stick. Mm-hmm. But it was fun. It did mean I get I got to watch the Blues win with a bunch of Blues fans, even though I didn't know them. But that was a uh, that was a fun experience. Yeah, that is, that is pretty cool. I remember watching the uh, back when I when I uh, lived on my own in Brooklyn and going basically every other night during the Rangers final, uh, Stanley Cup run in 2014, which of course ended in heartache. Uh, but it's it's great to be amongst people, and so there, there's the spirit which I recognize of like yeah, bring sports back, but also. Can people stop fucking dying and getting sick and like not yeah. worrying about it? Like, like I, I know. So my my wife's family uh, or her parents are in South Carolina, which is a, a state in which cases have been increasing drastically, and there are now mandates to wear masks in public. And one of the messages that elected officials gave to the the people of like, here's why it's important: is like, if you don't wear masks, there won't be football in the fall. And so in a, in a, in a Southern, <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah. Ba- yeah. Basically, especially in a Southern state yeah. and in Clemson in particular, where the football there is huge because they've had a great team in recent years. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of a big incentive. Like, don't you want things to come back instead of here's the stick, here's the carrot instead. Who would, uh, one final question. Do you remember who St. Louis would have to play if, the, when, if, and when the playoffs start? Well, I, I don't think it, because because the Blues were a top first, seed, yeah, they, okay, yeah, they they it wouldn't be settled until the second round, right? They have the buy in the first round, and then they're, okay, That's, that right. makes sense, yeah. Whereas the the Rangers would have to play the Hurricanes, and uh, I don't think the Rangers are a very good team, but if there's a team they match up well against, it's the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, so we'll see. Um, a lot of uncertainty up in the air, but uh, Dave and I are on the public record of just cancel the fucking season, um, and everyone yeah. wear a mask, please. But. Um, but this is this episode. This is a great uh, one of the few. Normally, our transition from hockey into movies is is awkward. <laughs> yeah. But we're talking Canada. Yeah, no, it's here. it's kind we of just perfect. Canada sport. The playoffs, if they happen, are going to be in Canadian cities. That's so, true. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about Canucksploitation. Now, be honest with me, David, because when you pitched it to me, I thought this was something that you kind of cobbled together and threw uh, or, or found a theme. Which, but really, Canucksploitation is. This is a real historically verifiable thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's a layman's term for it. It sure. is in more academic film history terms uh, in Canada it is referred to as the tax shelter era. Oh. Cuz basically what happened was um uh not a lot of movies it's weird to think now when so many movies are made in Canada, <laughs> but not a lot of film production was was done in Canada uh, uh up until the mid 70s and also a big part of it the films that were made were um, uh, financed by 
tax money. Hmm. And that became actually kind of a hot button thing because like David Cronenberg made, I think, Rabid and there was a big sort of like oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uproar about like this movie is uh, morally reprehensible and it's being made with taxpayer money. And so the, they, they, they instituted this tax shelter where basically any investment you made in a movie that met some very basic criteria, uh, that amount of money was com- was c- completely non-taxable from your income. So, uh, mm. so, it, so a, a lot of that's why it's called a tax shelter. A lot of uh, reading about this, uh, apparently, a lot of a number of the movies that were produced during this time were never really distributed because they didn't. They didn't need to be in order to qualify for the tax. Like the tax thing really had it had to be like the cast and crew had to be like seventy five percent, or or maybe I'm getting the name the 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 um the percentage wrong. But like so, a lot of these movies uh, got made, and there are some movies that are made uh, at at the time that um, were uh, I'm forgetting I'm drawing blanks on the names that were nominated for Oscars in in the U S. and movies like. Um, uh, one of the last ones, I guess, The Grey Fox from 1982 is is still considered one of the great Canadian films of all time. So there was some some like more middle brow and highbrow stuff done, but a lot of this, what it meant was just fast and dirty, uh, cheapo genre movies, and there are a ton of them. Uh, and some of those ended up being great. Like I could I could have done a whole Canuck exploitation just on Cronenberg because he made. Videodrome and uh, The Brood and Shivers and probably one or two others mm-hmm. uh, during this era, like kind of like the the sort of Roger Corman school here uh, in the U.S. It it was kind of a proving ground for directors who would and and actors and, and other filmmakers who would go on to to bigger things. Ivan Reitman sort of started in this in this era. Like mm-hmm. I said, David Cronenberg had a big uh, uh, a very successful period, as we'll see in one of the movies I. Uh, recommend today Michael J. Fox uh, has a has a small role in in one of these movies. Um, so it ended in 1982. Um, I think it's generally looked on as the era is kind of looked on in a fa- as a as a failure in terms of what the Canadian government had wanted it to to be. Um, but it gave us a a, a bunch of fun, uh, cheap. Uh, and, and sometimes very nasty and gory uh, horror movies um, and other exploitation type movies. You called it exploitation, and also, I mean, the obviously it comes from exploitation films, black exploitation. What we think about it was sort of this this uh, this this avenue for underrepresented mm-hmm. uh, filmmakers or films to kind of get in the public realm. Black exploitation, arguably, kind of being the most prominent or most influential, at least in uh, American cinema. So, without spoiling too much of the actual films you're going to talk about just yet, did this sort of help actually launch the careers of some of these filmmakers? I, I guess that's hard to say. I'm trying to think of who, because um, yeah, like I said, David Cronenberg had already made uh, m- movies. Um, I guess um, I'm looking up the filmography real quick of of the first director we're going to. Mm-hmm. to to talk about to see um uh no yeah he'd already been making movies for for a while so i don't know if it uh, launched career of any filmmakers like i said michael j fox uh has a very small role in in one of these movies um 
I, I guess it, it launched some careers in some ways, not necessarily a lot of big name directors that you would would know of. But just to be clear, this was like pre fame Michael J. Fox we're talking about. So this wasn't like he was jumping back and forth from family ties to connect exploitation, but it was connect exploitation, family ties back to the future, Michael J. Fox we all let know me, and love. Let me look at uh where where in his filmography uh this falls real quick. When did Family Ties premiere? Oh yeah, this is the same year as Family Ties. Okay. But he probably made it first. Anyway. Yeah, we we already established uh Michael J. Fox's lineages uh, lineage. <laughs> so I guess yeah, why don't we just uh why don't you recommend the the first title in Canuxploitation for me, David Bax? Okay, so the first title and, and I think I have to apologize because I looked this up while we were uh stuff that was fixed during an edit, I'm sure. Um <laughs> but uh, I think I think I might have said seventy five to eighty two. It's seventy four to eighty two is the tax shelter era. Okay. Uh because and I'm I'm starting with a film from nineteen seventy four and that's Bob Clark's Black Christmas, oh, the original, yes. not the 2006 remake or the 2019 remake, mm-hmm. but the original uh, Black Christmas, which is kind of a. Uh, I feel like anything before Halloween is like proto slasher. Like punk didn't exist until like the Ramones, so the Halloween Halloween is the Ramones of slashers, and that makes Black Christmas a a proto slasher. Um, but uh, Black Christmas is one of my personal favorite horror movies of all time. Mm. Um, and so, and I think it's, uh, I, oddly, I feel like, um, it might give you starting with black Christmas might give you the wrong idea because black Christmas, as much as it is like nasty, it sometimes, um, and, and it really sort of grovels, uh, in, in the, in the muck and it can be kind of mean spirited <sighs> is not, as exploitative as you would expect for a movie about a killer killing a bunch of sorority girls in a sorority house. Mm -hmm. Like when you hear that description, you think of a certain type of sexploitation that's, that's, that's going to go on. Weirdly black Christmas is a surprisingly feminist film. Yes. Uh, have have you seen it already? Yeah. Well, I, I have, I, um, it's been a little bit, I don't think it was, Maybe it was this past Christmas, but I did because it is one of the places that you can stream is on Shutter. So okay. just poking around on Shutter around the Christmas uh, holiday season, I wanted to kind of see because I'm David. I am a big horror fan. I'm also a big Christmas fan, and oh, yeah. because of how splintered the streaming landscape uh, landscape has become, because you know one studio might own the rights to this and one studio, it, it's kind of hard to find a bunch of stuff which is all kind of put together in one. Um, uh, one avenue. So I was poking around on Shutter as like what ho- what horror stuff they have for Christmas, and I saw this one on there. I'm like, you know what? I've never really seen it, um, but I am. A, I, I guess I'm a fan of Bob Clark just because by proxy, because a Christmas story has been such an integral part of my childhood and the Christmas holiday season. So I'm like, it was interesting to me to think that the guy that made this alleged, like allegedly kind of seminal horror film. Then also made like the uh, this seminal Christmas film as well, and he also made Porky's, which I've never seen, but is I think it's the highest grossing movie from the Tax Shelter era. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, so that that was him uh, as well. But yes. uh, uh, Black Christmas is a movie that uh, doesn't have any of the uh, like 
gratuitous nudity. I'm not even sure if it has any nudity uh, at all. Mm-hmm. It, it's it really is uh, about um, the 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 women are not just there as fodder for the 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 faceless uh, killer. It, it, it takes them seriously as as characters and actually has an abortion storyline yeah. mm-hmm. where one of the characters is pregnant and uh, uh, played by Olivia Hussey uh, is pregnant and is planning to get an abortion and her boyfriend is insisting that she doesn't have the right to get an abortion that his say so yes. and he becomes I mean you'd have to have never seen a horror movie before to actually <laughs> think he's the killer right. but he becomes one of the suspects he ends up being a red herring again this isn't a spoiler a, because you've seen it but to the listeners you know you'll know watching the movie that it's that it's not him but maybe in 1974 when the slasher thing was less uh hadn't really been formed yet people were maybe uh actually fooled into thinking this guy was the killer because of his misogyny essentially mm. um and uh I, uh, so uh, that was some, when I finally saw Black Christmas uh, for the first time a few years ago uh, when Scream Factory put out a, a new uh, Blu-ray and a new restoration. I was really surprised because I was expecting um, uh, a different kind of exploitation movie. Now, that said, the movie, some of the kills are very upsetting. Um, and and some of the things that happen, like the because it takes place over the Christmas holiday and there's a whole storyline where one of the girls, the sorority girls, who's like the nice girl. That's the other thing. The, the uh, Jamie Kennedy rules of slasher films from scream had not really been uh, quite been uh, uh, established yet. <laughs> right. Um, where the Virgin is the one that survives because the nice, like sweet virginal girl is the first one who gets killed. <laughs> she gets suffocated and her suffocate and her body stays in the attic the entire movie. And like the Bob Clark keeps cutting back to this poor young girl's like uh, uh, dead, like horror stricken face while her father has come to pick her up, to take her home for the holidays and oh, is looking right. all over the campus for, yeah. it's really upsetting. Like the movie <laughs> is very dark. Um, but uh, yeah, that's one way in which it doesn't fit the general slasher format or in a, in a lot of ways, a lot of exploitation movies, horror or not, um, tend to be, while they are filled with sort of outrageous content, tend to be morally very conservative movies. Yeah. And that will definitely be the case with the next two. But Black <laughs> Christmas is kind of an outlier because it's a... Uh, it, it's a it's a much smarter, more feminist movie, while not giving up any of the 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 sort of uh, the if you're a I don't want to say gorehound because it's not that gory, sure. but uh, if you're looking for vicious kills, you'll you'll get uh, your share in Black Christmas. You talking about this movie has reminded me or or caused two thoughts uh, to to stir with me. The the number one is uh, just an observation that I remember. The last time I watched Black Christmas, I also watched it in close proximity to A Christmas Story. With and have you seen A Christmas Story, David? And or are you a fan of it okay. at all? Oh yeah, I mean that's a movie that I like. A lot of people my age that I grew up on, okay. and I I think it really holds up. <laughs> you know, when I say holds up, I mean in terms of like filmmaking and stuff, like the racist stuff. No, obviously yeah. does not hold up. Yeah. Um, yes, <laughs> quick interjection on David's part there. Um, no, but but uh, but one thing that I think. Bob Clark does so well across both of these movies is how he uses sound to kind of set a, a mood. And so I, in Black Christmas specifically, there's 
the phone calls from the killer, which are, it's, I think it's just breathing, but it's, it's done in such a way where it's so kind of haunting. And then it's, it's more than just breathing. He says, um, he says some stuff that is, uh, really explicit, Mm -hmm. like in terms of like, uh, uh, sexual, uh, harassment. Mm -hmm. And apparently, um, some of that stuff was dubbed in later that that, the young actresses, including, I mentioned Olivia Hussey, but you've also got, um, Margot Kidder, uh, who it's, which is in a wonderful performance because we know, you know, she's Lois Lane. She's a sweetheart. Everyone loves her, Mm -hmm. but here she's, not to, this isn't a term that I like to use, but it's an archetype, a character archetype. She's the bitch. Yeah. Like she's, she's, and she's a truly like unredeemable person. She's really a mean, uh, <laughs> nasty young, young woman. And you've also got, uh, Andrea Martin, which is a, it's a pre SCTV Andrea Martin. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, which is weird. Cause she's now known as a, as a comedian, comedic actress, mm-hmm. uh, and and here she's playing the sort of like uh, the mousy smart girl um, in the in the sorority. Uh, <laughs> but sorry, I, I I cut you off. Well, I, I just wanted to. Uh, the The point is that the uh, what the actresses are reacting to was apparently uh, tamer than what you're actually hearing, which gets pretty explicit. Okay, well that that is interesting. I have to say, but but it, it even kind of feeds in then to just. Even if he added that stuff later, just the, the phone calls and what you're hearing, because you don't really, you're not seeing the, the killer explicitly, but just how, how that creates kind of a mood, which is done in a similar manner in A Christmas Story, but for a different tone, where when um, Ralphie's mom calls Swartz's mom, and you hear Swartz getting hit on the other line because of the lie of like of the word that Ralphie said, and I'm just like... I have two extreme visceral reactions to what is happening, but it's still through such a simple use of like this filmic sound, basically, which is just, I just thought that that was kind of a wonderful little um, symmetry. But then the, the other thought that I had was just, it's funny that you mentioned this film or you're recommending this film and talking about how progressive it is and also kind of, well, no, just how progressive it is because... You, you, you see exploitation, then you think of exploitation, and you think of, well, of course a bunch of women on the college campus, this is going to be real steamy and risque, and it's not, and just kind of goes to, um, speaks back to, I mean, you were also on this podcast to talk about mumblecore films, quote-unquote mumblecore, and you taking umbrage with the term mumblecore, and also just how films get kind of like grouped together, something as, as like a simplistic, mm-hmm. um, a simplistic system of categorization, whether it's right or wrong, there's not really a question or thought in there, but I'm also just kind of reminded of um, back in the early 2000s when Saw came out and then, and you kind of had a, you had um, critics calling these filmmakers, the splat pack. And it was like Lee, you know, Lee Wan L and James Wan and Rob Zombie. And like, Mm. but they, they weren't friends. They didn't like make movies together. It's just (laughs) like, Nope, they, they all came out at a similar time. So they're of course the same thing. But I, I, that's, that that was just kind of a, a little, a little rant, I guess. But uh, Black Christmas, uh, yes, I, this is one that I've seen, but I, I am eager to see it again because especially it's July, it's fucking hot, so it's it's good to have a, yeah. <laughs> it's good to have an escape, yeah. an escape for like that. So, um, um, yes. Sorry to, to, but I, to address what you were saying, there the, um, I don't know that these filmmakers were all friends, but um, uh, the specifics of the tax shelter do give us a, a sort of form to the exploitation term. Mm-hmm. 
you know what I mean? No, it, but it seems more kind of like, I, I guess you can't make anything which is snappy or punny off of like low budget, so you kind of have to go with right. something, I suppose. Snow budget? Because it's like Canadian? No. I'm st- okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in, but I'm going to apologize for everyone that I that I made that joke. That was terrible. But uh, David, uh, make everyone forget that I made that joke by recommending me another movie, please. So the other movie, and here's the thing. I don't know in terms of streaming which version you'll get. Because um, okay. I have the Scream Factory Blu-ray okay. uh, that is the as much of the gore that they could reinstate as possible. Mm. Uh, and that's directed by George Mahalka. It's 1981's My Bloody Valentine. Here's one thing that I will say uh, about these exploitation movies. And weirdly, I feel like a lot of Canadian films in general mm-hmm. um, often aren't overt about the fact that they take place in canada mm-hmm. i'm not sure if that's just like a a way of we want we want to be able to sell these movies in the states so they don't uh uh specify and my bloody valentine doesn't officially specify uh that it's in canada nova scotia in particular mm-hmm. but they also don't go to any length at all to disguise the accents. So my buddy Valentine is a delight because it is uh, just the way the characters are talking is as Canadian as possible. And, and that's, uh, that makes a, makes, makes it uh, even more fun. But, um, uh, but this is a, uh, uh, more of the, um, not, not as fully like, uh, morally judgmental and conservative but it does the movie could be summed up by like uh uh, the younger generation are idiots that's basically like what the movie is about because basically it takes place in a town and the town is called like valentine or valentine's cove or something like that of course um and so uh and it's a mining town Mm -hmm. and so at some point in the 60s the every year they the town had a big valentine's day party um and then at some point in the 60s, there was a cave-in at the mine, and some miners were trapped, but the town, like, went on with the party anyway, and when one of the miners, like, actually got, worked his way out, he was had lost his mind, and he, like, killed a bunch of people. Okay. And so the town had canceled the 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 annual Valentine's Day party. Watching, watching it now, if I'm... Uh, uh, if I'm a 17 or 18 year old high school student and something happened 20 years ago, that's before I was born. That's ancient history. <laughs> Whereas now I'm 37 years old and things that happened 20 years ago, I have perfectly clear memories of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, that's a, it's an interesting uh, comment on sort of generational memory that you've got these high school kids who are like, uh, oh, forget our scaredy cat fuddy-duddy old parents and their superstitions we're gonna throw uh we're gonna throw a valentine's day party and nothing's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and what do you know the killer or some version of the killer 20 years later uh shows up again and starts picking off uh uh teenagers or young adults uh who work in in the mines um and uh the movie uh I, i feel like there are certain movies where all you need to do is fulfill the the premise. You need to find okay, what what are fun ways, fun quote unquote, <laughs> like darkly fun ways to kill people in a Valentine's Day way. What's a festive Valentine's Day way <laughs> to kill people or to like present bodies? And so you've got this thing where he like 
he hides the bodies, but he sends the hearts mm. in heart-shaped boxes okay. to to the police station. So you've got that. Uh, plus, you've got this mining town thing, and so you don't have to be uh, a genius to guess that the the third act of the movie takes place down in the mines sure. with the killer. Uh, chasing the these young people uh, uh, around the mines, and again, it finds all sorts of fun, like specific mine-related uh, uh, ways to to produce scares and kills and stuff. And um, the yeah, the the movie is uh, in some ways very very gory, mm-hmm. uh, depending on which version you're watching, and uh, and yet. Like like the best of the gory slasher movies, it's fun because it's uh, it's over the top enough that I'm not actually like unlike the the first girl who gets killed in Black Christmas. I feel terrible for her and her family. Mm-hmm. We kind of understand the archetypes we're working with in My Bloody Valentine, and we we kind of all sort of tacitly acknowledge like yeah, we're here to see young people uh, uh, get drunk, have sex, and then get murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we're here for. So the movie's <laughs> fun it has it has a a a really fun time uh with that well and it's it's funny because we we we're talking about exploitation movies these low budget canadian movies both of which so far inspired at least one american remake i know my bloody valentine was was came out in 2009 in that thankfully short-lived uh 3d craze because i remember the ad where a Miner was throwing a pickaxe towards the camera and, you know, whatever. But it's interesting that these low-budget Canadian films, in some way, some ways, I guess I could say, seem like they might have been precursors to things that would have been popularized in American horror later. I mean, uh, the prototypical slasher film in My Bloody Valentine in 70, or, uh, I'm sorry, Black Christmas in 1974. And in My Bloody Valentine, it seems like it has that theme of the sins of the parents being revisited onto their kids, which Wes Craven would do in, what, 84 with Nightmare on Elm Street, I think? Okay, My Bloody Valentine. I don't really have any questions on this one, so I guess, why don't we get into the third one, which I have to assume is, A, another horror film, and B, that has been remade uh, in America, or was remade in America 20 years later. No, I've. Th- this is where I'm throwing you for a loop. This is not... Uh... Not a horror movie, um, and has not been remade. Though it has been, I would say, over the past in the past ten years or so, kind of rediscovered. I think by okay. a lot of people. All right. Uh, and that's from 1982, directed by Mark L. Lester. The movie is called Class of 1984. Mm. Um, and this is a kind of uh, exaggerated version of uh, movies. And you know what? Again, your uh, I, I hadn't thought about this, but your thing about like Americans would come along and. Uh, and, and and do this because uh, there are movies like The Principal, I think was one, and uh, The Substitute. Uh, <sighs> basically, it's a movie about like these these teens are out of control, mm-hmm. and all they need is one member of the faculty to stand up against them. <laughs> you know, the teens are running the school, yep. and so basically, you've got this uh, um, this high school and that's a underfunded uh, high school in an unnamed uh, uh, city. And the re- most of the students and even the staff are kind of held at the whim of the punk rock gangs. Um, <laughs> and the leader of the gang is actually uh, Tim Van Patten plays him who would go on to be a director who would direct like uh, a ton of episodes of the, Sopran- the Sopranos he, is what he's best known for. He, he also did not just the pilot to Game of Thrones, 
but also um, currently airing on HBO, in which I recommend as well. Uh, Perry Mason, also, the, he, he's done I, I think five episodes, oh, okay. but he did he did the the pilot of that one. Yeah, so so he has made quite a career for himself as a a respected uh, TV director. Yeah, but uh, he he started here. Uh, I don't know if he started. I'm not sure what his uh, uh, credits were before that. Um, but uh, here he's the leader of a punk gang. He's a he's a vicious criminal. Uh, he terrorizes poor Michael J. Fox. Um, uh, and you've got uh, so you've got a new stu- a new teacher who's come in. Um, I'm looking it up. He's the new music teacher. I'd forgotten that. It's been a while since I saw it. Um, but I, I actually saw this in the theater about. Uh, about a decade ago when, when it was restored, I, I saw like a new, uh, print of it. Um, uh, and so this, this new teacher, uh, comes, he meets his, uh, a teacher, a, a friend played by Roddy McDowell. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, and Roddy McDowell's warning him, like, you gotta pack heat. If you're going to teach at the school, you gotta <laughs> literally like he carries a gun. And at first the new teacher tries like to, you know, the good cop method. He, he, you know, uh tries to kill him with kindness but uh these these poor punks just won't uh or no, these nasty punks just won't uh respond mm-hmm. uh, to to his nice guy ways so eventually he turns against them and uh so the, it's this one man this this hero teacher against uh <laughs> all the terrible young punks it really does i mean like the movie has some uh, great over-the-top stuff, some great... Uh, again, it's an exploitation movie with vicious, you know, vicious content, some violence and stuff, but uh, it really does feel kind of like My Bloody Valentine, like the older generation just being terrified of the younger generation. <laughs> like, how did things go so far astray uh, yeah. uh, with these kids with their mohawks and their leather jackets and their chains? Uh, it's the end of civilization. Um, it's, which is it's... funny because, actually, Mark L. Lester did make us. A sequel, which I haven't seen. Class, class of 1999. Class of 1999, which my understanding ha- is that it it has more of a science fiction edge to it. I think. Yeah. Um, according, but I didn't. I never saw never saw that one. Yeah. According to IMDb, the um, the teachers are now robots because the kids have have run such a riot in the school. I, I just say that as someone who has just kind of now, I must admit, has taken a deep dive into Mark L. Lester's IMDb profile now because he was the director of not just Class of 1984. Um, but also Firestarter was the movie he did after that. Don't hold that against him. No, everyone's favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Commando. Have you ever seen Commando, David? Uh, I think uh, I saw it when I was probably too young. Okay. Um, Commando is hilarious because it's one of those movies, like, it's, it's you know, it's a it's a Schwarzenegger movie in the 1980s where he's a, uh, an army guy named Matrix um, who is tasked with killing a whole bunch of people but you know you you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 1980s think of who his opponents were maybe you know so if you want to think of uh the predator in predator or you want to think of um who were some of the 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 you know the the ferocious actors in Running Man or you want to think of uh, Michael Bean or Linda Hamilton or Robert Patrick in the Terminator movies but like you know if you had Arnold in a movie you were going to have an actor opposite him that you'd think would go would be able to go toe-to-toe with Arnold, correct? Uh-huh. Commando, the villain is a, I'll give him, a tall, doughy, out-of-shape man with a mustache who we have to, and who wears sort of a, like, almost a fishnet, like, top the entire movie. 
And the movie would have us believe this is the guy that is supposed to be the big bad for Arnold Matrix Schwarzenegger. I believe it's also the screen debut of Alyssa Milano as his daughter. Um, Oh, you've also got David Patrick Kelly and Bill Duke. I'm looking at the cast here now. Uh, I should watch this. It's a... It's I I'm not a proponent of so bad it's good, but it's highly entertaining if you take it as like this is a movie which is supposed to be a, a parody of '80s action movies. Because if you firmly believe it's a movie which is trying to take itself seriously, you will just kind of lose hope in humanity. But um, that's Mark L. Lester. Um, but also one of the I see on Class of 1984 a story by credit and one of the screenwriters Tom Holland who. Uh, Fright Night, Child's Play, a, a, a big a big genre for us, basically. So this is kind of interesting. This movie. Yeah, it's got. I guess it's got its uh its pedigree. David, is this movie funny? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I'm not sure how. Some of it is uh over the top. I think it's intentionally funny. Some mm-hmm. of it is is fun to to look at. I think. I mean, it's intentionally a, an exaggerated movie, and so. I could see you laughing at it a mm. lot. You you mentioned one of the one of the recurring threads throughout these movies might be like this older generation who's sort of terrified of a younger generation. Um, I don't know if there's a question there or just a thought. Like, I, I what are your thoughts on that? Because it, it sort of seems like I could sort of understand if 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 a, if if they're doing it sort of sarcastically or facetiously. But this idea of if there's a kind of a more conservative bent. You see this in exploitation movies throughout the the ages that they are about what the older generation is afraid of, but they're also made to appeal to the younger generation, even though they are often like the 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 vic the, they they often don't come across well. Mm-hmm. You know, either Bloody Valentine, all the uh, all the younger. Uh, kids are getting murdered, or in class of 1984, all the younger kids are murderers, or or at least, <laughs> or at least criminals. Um, I, I think, but if you go back to like uh, the huge number of like motorcycle gang movies in the in the 60s, <laughs> yeah, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I think that was the same thing. It was people, um, uh, an older generation who's scared of this, and maybe is putting it on film to. Uh, uh, on the one hand, to condemn it, maybe in a way, but also knowing at the same time that uh, the younger generation that it's made up of is going to eat it up. Uh, again, even if I don't know if you've ever seen the the Wild Angels with uh, mm. with Peter Fonda, no, no. Um, the biker gang does not come off as nice people. Not, I mean, obviously not supposed to be nice, but they come off as pretty terrible in in the movie. The movie definitely seems to be condemning them, and yet. Young people eat eat it up. I, I I don't know if it's a part of like I don't think that's specific to the eighties or to kind of exploitation. I think that's uh, a hallmark of a lot of exploitation movies. Hmm. And I guess it must be not to sympathize or or have sympathy for these guys, but it must be difficult if you're trying to make a movie criticizing the audience that you're hoping is paying to see the movie that is criticizing them. I mean, I think that's maybe where the where the exploitation. Mm. that's one of the ways that things are being exploited okay so as a as a recap we have black christmas my bloody valentine and the curveball of uh class of 1984 i i must admit david it's funny when you said when you were prefacing class of 1984 and saying um something about 
this like uh, the precursor to American things. When you said class of, I thought you were going to finish with Newcomb High, even though yeah. that's a trauma production, so clearly not Canadian. Um, but that's just where my brain went. Yeah, I've never seen Class of Newcomb High. I. I never have either. Um, I never have seen any trauma movie from beginning to end, even though, true story, I almost got an internship there when I was young. Oh. Yeah. Um, interviewed there, as fresh out of college, looking for intern, looking for places to intern for college credit, and I got interviewed by two guys who were probably my age, so I'm like, I don't know if I want to necessarily work here. Um, and now I kind of regret it, to be honest with you and the listeners. But that's that's a, that's beside <laughs> the point. Those are the... Three titles that I'll be uh, watching for July for uh, Connexploitation. Um, David, any parting thoughts on these films, on hockey, on the world at large? Uh, as far as the world at large, uh, wear a mask and yes. social distance, uh, please. Um, uh, uh, as far as what to watch, I, I, there's a lot of stuff that I could have picked from mm. the tax shelter uh, era. Um Including, I mean, I mentioned Porky's, also Meatballs mm. uh, is, is a tax shelter movie. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I guess I, those don't feel like, I guess those are like sex exploitation in a way or whatever. But uh, yeah. or at least Porky's is. But uh, I, I wanted to not just do tax shelter, but specifically do the exploitation part of exploitation. And so I picked some violent movies, uh, <laughs> <laughs> movies where you see young people get murdered. Uh, <laughs> which is the hallmark of lots of exploitation. So, um, so that's keep in mind that the tax shelter era uh, produced a lot of uh, other things, including some uh, more maybe artistically uh, appreciated movies. Um, but uh, I think I think all of these, all three of these, are are good movies, and that you will have fun watching them. Was, now, was there anyone, because you had mentioned at the beginning that this thing of what, uh, this hindrance that I have sometimes of what is readily available for streaming, was there any title that you would that you would have chosen, but it's just not readily available? I, I think I said this at the beginning of the episode, or, um, or maybe it was off mic, I think it was on the episode, that I, uh, having rewatched Black Christmas and watched My Bloody Valentine for the first time within a few weeks of each other, mm-hmm. I was like, oh... If I could find another like horror theme slash movie, that would be a good uh, topic for for Jim, yeah. um, or, or a holiday themed slash movie. I meant to say uh, that would be a good topic for Jim. Uh, and it was only in looking up these movies that I learned about the tax shelter era and saw that Class of 1984 was one of those movies and went, "Oh yeah, that's a great fucking movie." <laughs> uh, and so. Yeah, it all sort of fell into place uh, very quickly. Okay. Um, and now, David, normally this is where I'd, I'd have my guests wrap up with a sense of where they can uh, find your stuff. By this point, I'm sure everybody knows who you are, where they can find your stuff. So instead, what's going on at Battleship Retention? Are there any highlights you, you, you'd prefer people go in and click on, uh, an article to read, a podcast to listen to? What's going on at BP? Um, let's see. Uh, this You know what? This week, actually, uh, we... Uh, Tyler and I, my co-host and I, and Scott, the uh, Scott and I, the the editor at large over at BattleshipRetention.com, uh, ran down our personal top five movies of 2020 so far. Uh, a surprisingly robust and varied list, given that fewer things than usual have come out sure. this year. Um, but uh, you get, you know, we get to highlight some uh, 
some stuff that that maybe we wouldn't have anyways wouldn't have been able to otherwise so that's what's going on at battleshipretention.com this week listen to the new episode and now did any of you or all of you watch hamilton uh, I have not watched it yet because I don't have Disney, Disney Plus. Okay. Um, and I know I know for a fact that Scott doesn't have uh, Disney Plus. Okay. But uh, you'd have to ask Tyler. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if he did. Do you have a follow-up question to that? No, not really. Oh, okay. Because I thought you were going to ask me the the topic, the question that's on all of film Twitter's mind is Hamilton a movie? And I feel very definitively that yes, Hamilton counts as a movie now that we're in it now i i, I want to know more about this so i mean i guess the I, i'm assuming people on the other side are saying it it was it's just a filmed presentation of another art form which currently already existed so what is your argument that yes it is a movie is it just that there are plenty of movies that are that exact th- the exact thing okay. think of it like a, think of it as a concert film you know yeah. think of it as as the last waltz or stop making sense it's not unprecedented the, I don't know why people are acting like it's a, a a new thing. Now that does bring up the question. I I would hesitate before come the end of the year. I would hesitate before handing out any acting or technical awards okay. to Hamilton outside of maybe cinematography. Mm-hmm. But anything else in terms of acting, writing, pr- uh, production design, costuming, those things were done for the stage musical. So that would feel weird to award this movie that I guess I'm thinking of it as a concert film. And so I wouldn't consider it in any categories that you wouldn't consider a concert film in. I would also throw in there, and I'm sure you, you left editing out just because it didn't occur to you, not because you think it should be excluded or though maybe you should, but as I think editing would definitely be on the table. Yeah. Cause, cause seeing as seeing as you are experiencing it in a different um, context as if you went to go see it, the editing and what they're choosing to show you when it comes to cutting from a wide to a facial reaction. I was watching it with my wife who had actually seen it in person. And she said that having those, that ability to have the close-ups and to cut back and forth was actually, it showed her a new side of it that she had never experienced before. So I don't know what you know about how the thing was, was made. The, they shot two different performances, but then they also did a number of songs that they, they performed without an audience just for the cameras. They could get close-ups oh. and, and so that the camera operator could get on the stage with them and stuff like that. So to me, this seems like a film, you know, it was made for the art form of cinema. Um, uh, so it's definitely a, a movie. But again, I'm still thinking of it as more like a concert film. I, the, the best comparison is Stop Making Sense, which is also a concert mm-hmm. that was only put on for Jonathan Demi to make... It's not like it's not like the Talking Heads were playing a show that night, right? And it's not even the venue actually isn't even a venue; it's like a soundstage. Yeah. Um, they, the Stop Making Sense is the perfect example of uh, it's a concert film, but it was also it only exists because they were filming it, and so that so the, the with the way that this Hamilton thing was made, uh, kind of has shades of that. Um, so t- to me, it feels like it's very definitively a movie. That's the final word from David on Hamilton being a movie. Uh, on whether or not the NHL playoffs should be uh, a thing this year, and also on what kind of exploitation films are worth watching. Um, I personally look forward to Hamilton sweeping the Oscars um, next year, because that just yeah. seems to be um, how this world is shaping up with Disney. But, um, of course, um, it is always easy to get in touch with me. 
Uh, email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at NolanFixesTeeth. You can catch up on back episodes and chime in in the comments field, which I have to admit I have not checked in a long time. Yeah, but uh, go to battleshipretention.com, find I Do Movies Badly in the drop-down menu, or go to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com and also catch up on my other um, podcast, The Cast of Cthulhu, reviewing cinematic adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft at castofcthulhu.podbean.com. And I was reminded of this now because I had the thought earlier. When you talked about My Bloody Valentine, the people kind of not making any attempt to cover their Canadian accents whatsoever, um, <laughs> I was reminded yeah. of Stuart Gordon's Dagon, in which it's supposed to take place in, like, Arkham, Massachusetts, and yet clearly spain like from the cars to the <laughs> actors to the architecture like this is clearly not anywhere in the united states of america which i was reminded of but um but that's that we i won't keep you any 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 longer you david or you the listeners but thank you for listening david thank you for joining me once again thank uh, you for having me be sure to tune in next week where i will be covering black christmas and where hopefully i will be just a little bit less ignorant This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.